want to welcome a new sponsor to the podcast, and that is Happy Car Florida and Happy Car Sales. Now, listen, I've known the owner, Lou Marici, for about 15 years. I've bought cars from him at different locations all throughout South Florida, and now he's doing his own thing, just like me. Go figure that one. Louis Marici runs happycarsflorida.com, and here's the best part about it. If you're interested in buying a car, whether you have good credit, bad credit, or get this, no credit whatsoever, you can buy a car from Louie. It's very simple. All you do is call 954-745-9599. Very specifically, tell Louie you heard about him on my podcast, Swings and Mishes, and he's going to get you into a car. Again, financing is done right in the dealership. It's easy to get a car. At the end of the day, you'll be driving out with whatever car you want. And here's the best part of it. If the car that you want is not on his lot, Louis is going to get it for you. How do I know? Because you can call him right in the cell phone and ask or text him. 561-716-6463. That's Louis's direct number. You text him and say, hey, Louis, I heard about you on Swings and Mishes. Here's the car I want. Can you get it for me? Bam, you got it, you're out, and you're good. No credit, bad credit, good credit, doesn't make a difference who you are. Louie will take care of you. Again, Happy Car Sales, 954-745-9599, located at 203 West State Road 84 in Fort Lauderdale. You'll be leaving Happy Car Sales very happy. Hello, baseball fans, and welcome back to yet another episode of Swings and Mishes, this time just a week out from the MLB trade deadline. I am your producer, Jeremy Taché, joined by Craig Mish on this fine Wednesday. Craig, how's it going on your side of uh, Broward County? Doing very well and really heating up as far as uh, the summer is concerned. Man, it has been hot here in South Florida, so... Uh, yeah, I, I think we got football on the way here, Jeremy. So by the, by this time next week, after the trade deadline has come and gone, I know a lot of people's focus in South Florida will be toward the Hurricanes and uh, and the Dolphins. For you, it'll be uh, UCF. For me, it'll be it'll be the Gators. You know, so uh, we're looking forward to football season here. We're going to have a lot planned, by the way, for football yeah. uh, here on this podcast. In addition to some of the baseball that we do, so that's exciting. We'll tell you more about that in the upcoming weeks. But as far as the Marlins are concerned, they're wrapping up the series, of course, with the White Sox. And then we're going to have a lot of fun, I think, this weekend for the throwback weekend. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and let's just get right into all of it. You talk about the White Sox. Last night was remarkable. Uh, Caleb Smith, probably his best start in a Marlins uniform. Um, Caleb Smith was absolutely nasty. He went five and two-thirds of perfect ball uh, before allowing a couple of walks and ultimately a run. But seven innings, two hits, one run, nine strikeouts for Caleb Smith. You know, as you look at what Smith has done, what were your thoughts on the performance last night? Well, I think that in the postgame, he said at best, he doesn't want to be a five-and-dive pitcher. There's just no way that he can capitalize uh, financially in his future and even as a potential ace in the big leagues as a five-inning or even six-inning pitcher. Now, the average pitcher in Major League Baseball, I think I saw the other day, it was 5.83 innings. Now, that's not going to apply to the good pitchers in baseball. Remember, this is factoring in some of these guys that go two innings and get bombed and come out, like the fourth and fifth starters, some of them in the American League. But look, there's no doubt that Caleb Smith is their best pitcher, and he unfortunately missed a month. Uh, Don Mattingly, when he was put on the injured list back in early June, said that, oh, you know, 
we don't anticipate this being a long thing, and it turned out to be a long thing. So right. the Marlins saved the innings basically in a season that really doesn't matter all that much, but I would say that going into next year, the goal should be Caleb Smith starts opening day, makes somewhere between 25, 30 starts, throws somewhere between 160, 170 innings, maybe even more than that, and really puts himself into the elite category of left-handed pitchers in Major League Baseball. So a uh, very bright future for Caleb Smith, no, no question. You know, it's funny. I feel like uh, the Marlins fans over the last couple of months almost forgot about Caleb Smith while he was hurt. You know, there's been so much optimism around Sandy Alcantara, who made the All-Star game and had a stretch there over about six weeks that was as dominant as anyone. You know, we, there's been a lot of talk about Sixto Sanchez and Edward Cabrera in the minor leagues, Gallon coming up, Yamamoto. It's almost as if we forgot about the guy who had been so dominant for the first couple of months of the season once he got hurt. And so it was really nice to see Caleb Smith come back into form and dominate the way that he did. Um, and, and it'll be nice to see him pitch throughout the rest of the year. As you mentioned, the, you know, the innings were able to be limited because of that injury. Um, but moving toward the rest of the year, like I mentioned off the top of this podcast, we are close to that trade deadline. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what type of movement happens for the Marlins. You know, there are guys like Starlin Castro, Sergio Romo, Neil Walker, what are you hearing around different names that could be on the move for the Marlins, whether it goes toward one team or another, or what type of moves could be made? Yeah, well, we could start with Caleb Smith because, of course, there's going to be teams that are interested in him. But as far as I'm concerned, and I haven't heard that anything, uh, you know, other than the fact that, look, uh, Caleb Smith is, is 28 years old. I understand that some fans want to sell high on the player. And naturally in baseball, that is how you go about doing things. But there's a lot of factors here. And, and first of all, I want to make this clear. If, for example, Tampa Bay is offering the number one prospect in all of baseball and Wander Franco, the Marlins say, yes, thank you very much. They send a fax, they do a press conference, and the Marlins have Wander Franco. Okay, so <laughs> there are exceptions to the rule here. It's not, and, and by the way, Tampa Bay would never trade Wander Franco for, for Caleb Smith. And the Angels would never trade Joe Adele. And the White Sox would never trade Lewis Roberts. So, I mean, these things are just not going to happen. And the Marlins obviously will ask for a lot. They won't get it. And Caleb Smith will be back in the big leagues and be with the Marlins next season. And also, look, there will be some people who may laugh at this, scoff at this, and say it has nothing to do with baseball and you're just speculating. But I can tell you this for a fact. There is no doubt that the Marlins enjoy uh, taking a little bit of a victory lap on the New York Yankees. And that indeed is what's happened in this deal. They ended up getting uh, Garrett Cooper, and they ended up getting Caleb Smith. They gave back a player in Michael King who may end up being okay. We don't know, and, and certainly we have no idea because he's been hurt, but now he's back in pitching, and, and some international money that, that really uh, the Yankees weren't able to capitalize by getting Otani. There are a lot of Yankees former Yankees employees that are in the Marlins organization. Do we really need to go through them all? You have Derek Jeter. You have Jorge Posada. You have Dan Greenlee. You have Gary Denbo. You have DJ Spillick. You have Fernando Seganal. They, they, there's, there's a nice little thing going here where the Marlins enjoy saying, ah, we got you to the Yankees. And look, if you don't think that that's possible, then you're not covering the team and you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. They enjoy it. They get a little kick out of it. That's not to say if they had a good trade, they would do it. But this is, this is, this is part of what's going on in Miami a little bit. Again, it also happened between the Cardinals and the Astros. When the Astros, uh, when, when the Cardinals lost Jeff Luno and he ended up going to Houston and they ended up winning these World Series and the Cardinals didn't, what did St. Louis do? One of their rogue employees tried to hack into Houston's system. <laughs> And, and try and get all their information, the guy ended up going to jail. So 
you know, and, and there's rumors that Alex Anthopoulos won't deal with his former team with the Toronto Blue Jays. There are those little intimate rivalries that you don't hear about all that much. Does that factor in a lot to this? I don't know that there's a lot, but there is some of, hey, look what we got that you guys had with the Yankees and the Marlins. There is no question about that in my mind. So we can start off there with Caleb Smith. And, and I do think that, that that does play into it somewhat. So I would expect Caleb Smith to be a member of the Marlins after July 31st. And on opening day, he'll, I would think that he'll make the start for Miami next year. So moving on from Caleb Smith and talking about, you know, the guys that maybe could be on the move. So we see Caleb Smith and we know that, that he'll likely stick with the Miami Marlins going forward. But when it comes to some of those other ancillary pieces, when it comes to Starling Castro and Sergio Romo, who are two of the names that have been floated out there more often than others, you know, are, are they or any other players gaining any traction at the moment for the Marlins or, or what's the deal with, uh, the the roster that is currently constructed that could be on the move. Anybody who's followed me for years know I love speculating. I love doing the percentage meters, and I love stirring the pot. But what I'm not going to do is just throw fake news out there mm. and create something that doesn't exist. And as of this podcast, there is no traction on any trades with the Marlins. I don't feel like any of the players that they have on their roster with expiring contracts are gaining a ton of attention from other teams. Now, it is still early. There is a week to go. I do think that at the deadline, all of a sudden, there will be teams that will not acquire Alex Colome and they won't acquire Shane Green. And those are two very strong ninth-inning guys that I think will be moved, maybe even some others. And then at the point where those teams don't get those players, there's generally some panic that will set in. And at that point, I do think someone will pull the trigger and acquire Sergio Romo. Hmm. But I will say, Jeremy, that I don't think that the performances of Romo and Walker and Castro have really gotten teams so supremely interested in them that they're going to get a huge return. So I would temper my expectations a lot in terms of trade. Uh, Walker, yeah, I mean, certainly there's a chance that somebody could take him on as an extra guy, a bench guy, maybe a pinch hitter type. But again, you look at the return last year, what the Marlins got for Justin Bohr, they got a player, right. uh, you know, they got a player that they're not even protecting on the 40-man roster at this point. There was no interest in Derek Dietrich whatsoever. People who jumping up and down about that, look at Derek Dietrich's numbers over the last two months. They're nothing. They're zero. He's gone right back to what he's been. So uh, I think they'll move Romo. I think there's a chance they get, they move Walker. And then, of course, what they have to do, in my opinion, and I know that this probably won't sound great, but they just have to give Starlin Castro to somebody else. They just have to do it. We need to see Isan Diaz in a big league uniform in August. September numbers are the biggest fool of anything. We saw that a couple of years ago uh, you know, with Lewis Brinson. We saw it for sure with Peter O'Brien last year. Like, we got to stop with what happens in September, Jeremy. Mm -hmm. Diaz needs some starts in August against some teams that are really, you know, trying hard and competing. Right. And I think that that is important. So what has to happen? I don't know. Uh, an interesting point was over the weekend, and, and this was brought up to me, imagine you're a scout of, uh, of a National League team, and it's very clear that the Dodgers are going to be in the postseason. And so you're watching and saying, oh, you know, I wonder if Castro – could be a guy for us that would go up against Kershaw or Bueller or Rue and have uh, success 
And then this is, and, and, you know, he went one for 18 and yep. didn't, and didn't look good. Small sample, of course, but that's going to factor in. Like, you know, that the Dodgers are the team that you're going to have to face. So if you're another team that's out there, like the Brewers uh, or the Cubs, maybe getting him back or another team, you want him to have success against those players. But from what I'm told and what I understand, Jeremy, there's almost no interest in the player other than if you're going to give him away, you know, give us a call. And I think that the Marlins at this point would be wise to say to a team, uh, we'll give them to you, uh, throw the future considerations in there, but under the idea that you got to pay his $1 million buyout next right. year because no one's paying Castro 10 plus million to play on their team next year. It's not happening. So there's that $1 million buyout plus the almost 5 million that he's owed. So right. Miami, honestly, eat that money. Just eat it. There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, you, I would just eat that $4 million, $5 million. Save yourself that $1 million buyout if you can. It's still a million dollars that you could save. Get back your little bit of IFA money if that's what it is and, and, save, and shake uh, Castro's hand and say thank you very much. But the problem is, Jeremy, everybody in the league knows that Miami wants Diaz up. I mean, this is just not right. a secret. It's going to be very, very difficult, even with the solid July that he's had. Although, let's let's be honest, he went one for 18 last week in the midst of that good run. Right. You know, he's he's. I, I think that he's done what the Marlins have asked, but personally for Castro, he's been a good guy on the field. He's put himself in this predicament with his April, May, and June. That's the bottom line. He did right. this uh, to himself. Uh, he did not have a good season. He could have probably been out of here and, and been on a good team had he put up the, even the numbers that he did last year, but he didn't. That's a fact. And, and I think Miami just really needs to, to swallow this money at this point and, and show the future of what the Marlins could be. Because what happens, Jeremy, if in August Diaz comes up and he rakes? Right. Like, wouldn't that create a ton of optimism for the future and to next year? Hey, look at this guy. We got back in the Christian Yelich trade. Yamamoto pitched yeah. well. Now here's, here's Diaz playing every day at second base playing well. Mm -hmm. They cannot – I don't think they can get into a situation where it's Diaz plays two days and Castro plays two days and they go to Castro Certainly and want to play not. another position. I, I mean, don't even create that atmosphere. Call Cleveland. Call Minnesota. Whoever it is, say, hey – uh, here, here's Starlin Castro. You take them, give her, give us some future considerations. We'll take the future considerations, but Hey, look, you know, he does have a $1 million buyout for next year. If you don't want to pick that up, that's on you. Fine. Great. Marlon save a million. Diaz is playing every day. Uh, first week, second week in August, and we can go about our business. So that's the way that, that, uh, that I think that they should handle it. But again, uh, I've never run a major league baseball. <laughs> well, I think the, <laughs> I think the general um, takeaway from that would be to just be sort of cautiously optimistic as we head toward the deadline. If you are a Marlins fan, you know, go into it, hoping for the best, hoping for some movement and knowing that maybe it's a little more difficult than, than we perceive in our trade machines. You know, the way that, the way that we do with basketball, where we're sitting there putting together different salaries that has to work with salary cap permutations. This is more just about finding the right fit necessarily for all of these players. And, you know, we'll see where any of them, if any of them end up. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the other thing is too, is that like, it's very easy as somebody who follows the Marlins as a fan, who's listening to this podcast. And it's also very easy of, of a member of the media like myself or you or anyone else to get caught up in the players and the value that you think or perceive that the players that Miami has, but then 
when you stack up their players against all of the other teams and all of these other teams that are probably going to be selling and you say to yourself, my gosh, like, right. Look at Romo up against some of these other guys that are out there, man, I would rather have those other guys. That's no disrespect to Romo, but uh, you know, if, if a, a couple of teams fail in, in their acquisitions and then they go to Miami, I think that will play into this. And I think this really could go, right down to the last minute in terms of trade but look Romo's been okay but you know he's his slider is still great and if you need a slider right you need a pitch then that's what he's going to deliver but he's he's not uh Shane Green he's not Alex Colomay I know Will Smith I don't know what San Francisco will end up doing with him now that they're playing so well but he is not Will Smith so yeah, it's 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 going to be tough, but look, when when you are a team and you go into the season, and I'm sorry Marlins if you're listening to this and you don't like it, but if you go on the cheap and you and you get these these very, you know, older veterans and you don't spend any money on one-year deals, you have to hope that they outperform the money that you paid them. Right. And and honestly they didn't. They did right. not. They you got what you paid for here. And I like Neil Walker. And I love Curtis Granderson, and I like Sergio Romo too. But the results speak for themselves here with those expiring and Sterling Castro. The results speak for themselves on these expiring contracts. Mm-hmm. And before you jump up and down about trades, what I would advise is a quick Google of any of the publications of the websites that are showing you all the players that are available. And once you see that and put that up against what Miami has, you're going to say, oh. Yeah, like <laughs> the Marlins right. will be lucky to get decent returns from the player. Right, and as, as you go into uh, nearing the trade deadline and you head into a situation where we're looking to see whether or not these players are moving, we do know that there's one more series at home where the roster will remain as constructed. And we think. We think. We think. I guess not. Theoretically, there could be moves before the trade deadline, although it does sound like most of the Marlins' moves would likely come. I agree. Day I agree. I agree. Um, and as we head into this weekend, it should be a really fun one. It's the throwback weekend where the Marlins are honoring the 1997 World Series championship team. You know, the team that defeated the Cleveland Indians, uh, the team that won on a walk-off, uh, a, a, the start of what has been a, a very interesting story arc of this Marlins franchise. And that was back in 1997. They have the throwback uniforms with the vests, which have looked wonderful in the... Uh, those sleeveless disposable camera photos that Jorge Alfaro has been taking on Marlon's social media. Uh, but it's been, it's been really cool to see all of the promotion and, and it's finally coming to a head this weekend where they'll have Jeff Conine at the park on Friday and they're honoring the, the 97 team, all sorts of other players, Luis Castillo, Charles Johnson, Craig, you know, I, um, I wasn't really conscious of what was going on in 97 uh i was uh i was i was was two years old um i got that world series but what i will say is i did wear my 1997 world series championship hat to school every single day through all of pre-k and when i lost it there you go i went ballistic but nonetheless uh what are you you can get one this weekend i could get one this this weekend and put it back on my head and you know have a have a throwback thursday picture but but craig uh, what are your memories of 97 and that team? And, and, you know, what do you think about the Marlins honoring that team this weekend? Yeah, before there was Shaquille O'Neal, before there was, uh, you know, LeBron, Dwayne Wade, 
Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the Dolphins had their success, obviously, previous to 1997. They got in a few uh, playoffs after that. The Panthers had that one stop in the Stanley Cup. There was that 97 Marlins team. It was great. It was mm -hmm. exciting. I was there opening day. I was there at the World Series. I, was, uh, I, I wasn't there for Game 7. Okay. Because I had to work. I was working on the West Coast of Florida at the time, and I was actually doing broadcasts at that time. Uh, so I wasn't there, but I was at game one and two. Um, it was amazing, man. It was, it was really something that put South Florida on the map outside of football. Mm. And to kind of watch game seven and how that played out. Uh, and, and here's some of the stories, by the way, that went on during the regular season. One player who won't be able to be there, obviously, because he passed away was Darren Dalton, and when the Marlins ended up acquiring him during that season, everyone seems to say that that was the big difference maker where he created a uh, seriousness and an attitude and made sure that everybody understood what was at stake there and how good the Marlins can be. And then, of course, Levon Hernandez and him coming in. And fortunately for me, through many, many years of people who know me know that I've been very good friends and um, was the executive director and uh, of uh, Cliff Floyd's foundation. Right. So Cliff will be there this weekend. I've been very good friends with him in both reality and, uh, and fantasy. We hosted fantasy shows together for a long time, and he's shared so many great stories with me outside of just being a fan as to when I got involved in the media. So I, these throwback weekends are super exciting for me because I went through them and I lived them. And, and there was just so many great memories of, of how well that season went. The park was just stacked. It was packed a lot, even for the regular season and then for the postseason. And so we'll talk to John Cangelosi, who played on that 97 team, coming up in a few minutes here on the right. podcast. But I can tell you that uh, unbelievable memories from 93 when the team started and then the buildup and all those acquisitions that they made with Moises Alou and Gary Sheffield and Kevin Brown and Bobby Bonilla. Uh, it, was, it was a team of all-stars, man. And, and, and obviously everyone knows the postscript to that, what happened after that in 1998. But I will say for this weekend, for Marlins fans, to be able to see all these people uh, there, come back, see the uniforms, maybe some YouTube videos of nostalgia for sure. And, and honestly, it's a good sign to see Jeff Conine back in the fray a little bit because – I definitely feel like there's somehow hopefully the Marlins can incorporate him more into what they're doing. I certainly understand, uh, you know, the, the hesitancy over the last couple of years to kind of eliminate anybody with those previous relationships to the old ownership. As most people know, uh, David Sampson and Jeff Conine, to my knowledge, very good friends, if not best friends, very tight with each other. And I, and I understand that, Hey, look, there's that, disconnect we've seen what what's happened with david over the last couple of years and um you know the marlins are just trying to disassociate themselves with that but conine was one of those guys man that you know i mean they call him mr marlin i don't know how much he loves yeah. it but but he was uh, you know mr marlin the 97 series 03 series uh, there's there he he contributed a lot to the on-field product of the Marlins even after he retired. This was not a shake hands and kiss babies thing. Like, he was very helpful. He was in the room a lot when, when trades were made, and they leaned on him for that. So uh, the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital and uh, Conine's Clubhouse, like the charity that he's raised for, he's, in a, he's, he's been amazing in this community. And I hope that this is – I think this is the second time he'll be back, but I hope this right. is something more toward the future, just like the Marlins brought back Tommy Hutton 
under different circumstances, certainly broadcasting. But I really do hope to see uh, Jeff Conine more out at the ballpark. And so I'll be there on Friday night, no question, covering, uh, covering the game. Yeah, and, and for, the, for the younger folks listening that either weren't alive for this 1997 World Series or, like myself, were very young when the 97 Series was happening, I, I would say that take a moment to appreciate how great that roster was. Take a moment to appreciate – you know, some of the history of this franchise and, and, you know, we, we've seen all the ups and downs, but it's going to be a really cool moment over the weekend. And obviously everybody loves those jerseys. So feel yeah. free to, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, and, I know I'll, I'll consider getting some. And by the way, all the guys from 97 that are going to be back at the ballpark, uh, including Conine, Cliff Floyd, uh, some of those other guys uh, are going to be uh, doing selfies, taking pictures. They'll be in the concourse all weekend long. Right. I know what I'm hearing a lot from my friends who are living in Broward is they're starting to hop on uh, the bright line. Yeah. And they're taking that from Broward. Now they're, the Marlins have really tried to emphasize now more of an emphasis is saying, Hey, look, we got all these fans in Broward County. Um, you know, let's, let's try and get them in. And my understanding from the people who have taken it is like super easy to get in and out. And then once you get to the station, it's like a couple of bucks on a lift or Uber yep. or whatever and that, that gets you there. So um, yeah, so I, I think that there's a lot to be uh, thankful for. This weekend will be fun. We got we've got that going on. You'll be able to get old Marlins gear for sure. So for for anybody, look, I, I look, I know football's going to take over. Miami plays UF at you know Dolphins start, and I and I know things will change, and Marlins are not going to make the postseason. But this is really the one weekend where you can you know kind of celebrate that nostalgia point of view. So hopefully we'll see some people at the ballpark this weekend, and then uh, we'll cover that trade deadline next week. Yes, we will. Um, in, in the meantime, uh, we have an interview coming up with John Cangelosi, as you mentioned, on the 97 team. Any quick notes you want to add before we get to, to this interview? Yeah, well, uh, again, um, you can follow on Twitter at Swings and Mishes or at Craig Mish. We'll, I'll be at the park on the 31st, and, uh, and it'll be interesting because the Twins are there on the 31st, too, and they're a team that is, is obviously going to be making some moves as well. Uh, I remember a few years ago, remember last year, the Marlins uh, had their trade deadline away from uh, Marlins Park. I believe they were in Atlanta. But the fun part about this is you get that hug watch. So, uh, and, and I remember a couple of years ago when Dan Heron was traded, uh, I, I went downstairs and he was, he was, uh, he was getting ready to leave. He had his, his, he was waiting for a car or a taxi or whatever. And, um, and I asked, you know, hey, you know, is it okay if I take a picture? And he just like ran away from me and huh. ran into like the club huh. section. But those are the kind of things that we're going to get some, I think, some compelling stories and video from this uh, from both sides, from maybe the Minnesota side and Miami side. So we'll cover it next week for sure. And, um, and look, I, I really uh, think that there will be a trade. I think the Marlins yeah. will make a trade. But, you know, it's. Yeah, this is not like Brad Ziegler last year having the two month a phenomenal two months and maybe stealing bases and, and easy to identify those trades. It's just it's just tougher right now. But I do think that by the time we get closer to the thirty first, we'll have more of an idea. Uh, but right now it's quiet. That's, that's well, just kind of where we're at. Well, and that being the case, everyone make sure that you do follow at Swings and Mishes on Twitter. You follow Craig at Craig Mish. I will be a little bit out of commission next week, so make sure to follow everybody else on Swings and Mishes, including Oscar Prieto, Danny Alvarez. Ian Smith, Louis Davila, and just be sure to, to stay up to date with everything that's going on at the deadline. Um, and we will keep you guys updated as much as possible. Uh, but for the time being, please enjoy this interview with John Cangelos. As always, want to thank All Year Cooling for presenting this podcast. All Year Cooling 
have serviced my unit in my house for more than a decade. Tommy Smith is the best. There's no one better that you could ever ask for, especially with the summer here, folks. Do you need your AC checked? Do you need it repaired? They give free estimates. They have the best financing of any air conditioning company in the state of Florida. And if you want to get a new unit, you need to call Tommy right now, 888-204-5554. As I mentioned, I have a unit in my house. And if I should ever have an issue, and we're talking about two or three in 10 years, I call all gear. They're at my house in 10 minutes. They have the best service plans possible, and they take care of you because they've been family-owned and operated for more than 25 years. That's Tommy Smith, my friend, the owner of All Gear Cooling, 888-204-5554. What are you waiting for? The summer is here. Before your unit goes down, call all gear right now and get it repaired. 888-204-5554. Incredible financing options at All Year Cooling. Stay cool in the summer with Tommy Smith and All Year Cooling. 888-204-5554. And with Throwback Weekend upon us, the 1997 Marlins, historically one of the greatest teams in the history of South Florida. And we're happy to have one of the members of that 1997 team. John Cangelosi is with us. In fact, KP Wee has written a great book on Cangelosi, which is called the improbable baseball journey of the undersized kid from nowhere to world series champion uh, published this year. We're going to talk about that as well, but first of all, it is always fun to catch up with my buddy, John Cangelosi. Uh, Kanji, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Wings and Mishes. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I appreciate you guys having me on, man. I really do. It's it, it's a pleasure. Well, look, when when you hear throwback and you hear 1997, I, I have to imagine that that brings back a lot of memories. I have a lot of memories of, of watching you during that season, and then you guys end up winning the World Series. Uh, I'm guessing it was the, the – was it the pinnacle of your career? I know you had a really long career, but was that the peak right there? I mean, uh, I would say just playing in the big leagues is is, is pinnacle and, and peak. But to to answer your question, absolutely. I mean, I I, I severed every moment. I, I loved every minute about being in the big leagues. But one one and foremost, I mean, winning a World Series was by far the best. But being able to do that full circle and come back home where I grew up and was raised in, in Miami was was unbelievable. Parents and brothers and friends were in the stands. So Again, I had I had uh, my cake and eat it too. I guess that series because I, you know I ended up winning a World Series in my backyard. Yeah, it was you know, for me and 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 again growing up in uh, originally in Brooklyn where you were from, um, and uh, and then moving on to South Florida for me that '97 team was really the first taste of a championship that I recall. The Dolphins won a World uh, I'm sorry a Super Bowl in 1972. I wasn't around for that. But what was that year like, uh, Johnny? Tell us a little bit about, you know, I know how you got to the team. You were basically Jim Leland <laughs> carried you around wherever he was. You ended up with right. him yeah, throughout yeah. your whole career. But what, what was that season like playing with that group of, of all-stars and future Hall of Famers? You know, um, it's funny you ask that because early on, I mean, and again, I mean, just to, to backstep a few I mean, unfortunately, everyone's, oh, yeah, we bought the World Series. We did this. We did that. You know, we didn't buy nothing. You still got to go out and perform. You still got to have team chemistry. You got to have guys that 
um, will be able to, you know, uh, pick one each other, one, one guy up if he's struggling or whatever. So, I mean, no one's ever said, oh, you know what, the Yan- you know, Yankees bought the World Series. I mean, no, you, you're able to put a good team together, and at the end of the day, you still got to perform. But going back to 97, first of all, you got one of the best managers in baseball from a strategical standpoint, never, got, never gets outmanaged from the seventh inning on, never gets outmanaged, always has a, a move uh, to offset the other guy puts his players in the best percentage possible to be successful. And with that being said, man, our, our first um, to all-star break, we were struggling a little bit. We weren't scoring runs. We were getting really good pitching. Um, we, we just weren't coming together. And, and we finally had a meeting and just said, hey, man, you know, we, we just we, we need a little bit more of something here. You know, you just can't throw your bat and glove on the field, expect to win. Um, we got a couple key trades with Darren Dalton. When, when we when we got Darren Dalton, Craig Council, it just changed the whole uh, dynamic of the team. It, uh, Darren brought that that captain, that swag, that you know whole bar none, you know bullshit attitude. You know, just leave it on the field, and you know, and it just it it changed our persona and the way we went about our business, and we went on a roll. As soon as we got Darren Dalton, we went on a roll, and. I think we uh, we went from third place in the wild card to first place within a month. And, and so you guys go on there, and and then you're carried, uh, you know, on the field, obviously by pitching when you get to that point. But what was it like uh, watching Levon Hernandez do what he did? I, I don't think anybody saw that coming, Johnny. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he was the most popular guy in Miami. That's for sure for a number of years after that. You know what he was, and, and his personality, you know, fit that whole criteria. You know, but what a great story, man! He comes over from Cuba, and you know, his brother's in Cuba still. El Duque hasn't come to the states yet, and I mean, as a brother, you probably feel guilty. Um, we were able to get his mom to see a game. I don't know how long it was before he saw his mom. Maybe a year or two. I really can't recall. But I mean, just for him to be on that stage being Cuban where 90% of the people in Florida are Cuban or Hispanic descent. Um, it was a great story. He threw the ball. Well, picked us up, you know, unfortunately Alex Fernandez, uh, throws a great game in, in, uh, San Francisco and then later find out, um, I don't know if it was a torn rotator cuff or labor. Mike, I can't remember which one, but we lost him. And then Levon stepped in and, and did a phenomenal job for us. John Cangelosi uh, really came off the bench in that 97 team, uh, got a big hit also in the postseason as well. And I, and I think when I look back on that and I look at all the players that you assembled, to me, Johnny, I just can't get over how many great players were on that team. I don't know if there was a player that you uh, really enjoyed playing with or if there was any individual on that team that you can speak to because I know that you played with uh, Benia uh, previous to that I believe with uh, with the Pirates but you, you had some great pitching you had some great closers but as you mentioned the pieces of that team yourself and Darren Dalton and uh, and some of the other guys on that team I know Cliff Floyd came and, and played on that 97 team at the end as well. Eisenreich. Yeah, Jim, Jim Eisenreich too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you guys had so many nice players that that came in. Was there one that that sticks out for you at that time of being on that team? Um, you, you know what we we all we all gelled. Uh, we all knew what we had to get done, and and, and that's why G, Jim Leland's probably the best manager out there. He's 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 a psychiatrist. He uses reverse psychology. 
for example, you know, you, you got Jim Eisenreich, myself, um, Jeff Conine became so, somewhat of a utility player. Uh, we had um, uh, Kurt Abbott. We, we, had, we had a great bench. And Jimmy Leland always made us feel wanted, you know. And, again, I had the opportunity to play for him for four different teams. So he always knew how to get the best out of us, you know. So because if you really look at it in hindsight, your bench players are the one that's going to come up in the most important part of the game, you know. And, and we got to come through in those situations. You know, we, we might not play every day, but you're asked quite a uh, you're asked quite a lot as a utility player to come in. For example, I, I'd come in leading off an inning if we're up a run or down a run. And, you know, I got to get on base and I, everyone in the ballpark knows I'm going to steal second base. So it, that was my job. Eisenreich was the left-handed RBI guy off the bench. You know, uh, we had the spot start. So to make a long story short, Leland just put the whole team together from, you know, having three lefties in the bullpen, having quality starters. And, and to answer your question, I, I'd have to say Moise Alou was probably the most uh, – uh, what do I want to say? Great teammate, but I feel like Moise Alou was the MVP of that year. I mean, he came up with big hits. You know, he was, if it wasn't for LeVon's story, I, I, you know, me personally, I feel like Moise Alou could have easily been the most valuable player to World Series. Um, big hits, played every day, great in the locker room. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to take anything from anybody else, but um, I'm just answering your question. I, I thought Moise Lou really stepped up that year. Well, that, that brings me to my final question about 97, and then I want to talk about your career. For those people who don't know, uh, Johnny ended up playing with Jim Leland, not just with Pittsburgh and the Marlins, and then he went on uh, even after his Marlins days, played a year with the Rockies too. Leland, uh, people don't even remember that um, actually managed with the Rockies after the Marlins. But you bring up Alou, and that is the final, really, uh, question about 1997 because I, the real shame of everything, of course, Johnny, and, and this is really what started some of Marlins history, was the dismantling of that team. And Alou was really one of those first yeah. guys to go about a month later. I remember opening day uh, begging my parents to allow me to go and watch you guys get your rings. And, and I see you and Bobby Bo and, and CJ and, and, and a few other guys, and that was really it. The rest of the players were traded. Yeah. And, I, and I just wonder how many more World Series or how many NL pennants you guys would have won if you would have kept that together. The team was so good. Yeah, uh, you know what? I don't, I don't want to, like, um, I don't want to say this is hearsay or I can't remember where I heard it from, but at the end of the day, may rest in may rest in peace Wayne Izinga was a great owner he um we had a meeting one time and and um uh all-star break or whatever it was and and we found out through the grapevine that he was in the process from his management team saying that he was going to sell the team because of that whole tobacco with the retractable dome they didn't want to build him a new stadium yada yada but he came in and said whatever it takes to win a world series I am here and, and and he was true to what he said. We got Darren Dahl, we got Craig Council. You know, those were major pieces to us winning uh, that final two months of the season. And then after the season, um, it, it, it came to my notice that they had a meeting, you know, Alex Fernandez and a few other guys that had those big contracts and they were going to try and either to, to defer some money or do something to, to make it financially um, better for Wayne Huizinga and, Things fell through, and he sold off, he sold off the team. And unfortunately, 
you, the biggest character, the biggest uh, personality was Moise Alou, and he was the first guy to go, which sucked, man. I mean, within two weeks, you're trading, you know, the guy that pretty much won you the World Series, you know, and it kind of just didn't sit well with us. And to answer your question again, of course, man, we had every piece of the puzzle. We had a great bench. We were still young enough. We were still under contract one more year. I, I signed a two-year deal. I think Eisenreich was three-year, but we we're still under contract. Everyone was – no one's going to make more money. We were all we were all signed through – I mean, I think Moisey and all these free agents, I think they had a four-year deal or whatever. So everything was in place. And I guess Wayne listened to his money people, and the city of, my, the city of Miami, they weren't going to buy him a new uh, stadium. So he sold off the whole team. And then I think – Years later, he came out and he said that he made the wrong decision. So, again, he didn't say that to me. I don't know if that's true. I heard that from uh, – I can't remember where, but he uh, admitted publicly that he made, he made the wrong decision. I mean, we could have we definitely contended. And I, with the chemistry and the manager and, and, you know, having the city not able to give us the opportunity to defend the World Series champs, like the, the whole – Miami thing and bringing uh, Cubans back to the field. I mean, that city was up and ready, and we just took the air out of the bubble, if that makes sense. It does, and, and, I, and I think, and I've told people that, that there was no coming back from that for a lot of fans at that time. They were so hurt. Yeah. You, you almost yeah, never it, it, in, in any sport, Johnny, you go from the top to the bottom so quickly. Like, it just doesn't happen. We, 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 yeah, we went, we went to the 98 98- uh, we went to 98 spring training and I shit you not 98 spring training. We go, we don't, we have one guy on the staff, one guy, Levant. That's it. <laughs> Everyone else is gone. Okay. Um, we have, we have maybe we have Sheffield and Renneria. And I believe. I think Benilla was, Benilla I mean, was there. Yeah. Benilla was there. They were, yeah, but we, but Benia, Sheffield, CJ, and somebody were the only ones left. And then before uh, the trade deadline, we traded them. We all traded them to LA. Remember, we got, yeah, we got, Mike uh, Mike we, got Piazza. Yeah. we got Piazza. You know, it's just a, a money transaction. And then everyone went their own way. But I mean, we didn't have an outfield. That's when Dunwoody, Kotze, uh, you know, we had all these guys from the minor leagues because there were so many jobs open, you know, that we, re- we really couldn't even feel the team in 98, if you ask me. Yeah, uh, Jay Powell, I remember, was your guy's closer out of that. In, uh, in 98, yeah. you, you were there for that great Mike Piazza experience, that, that few days. Yeah. I, yeah, um, yeah okay. I was there. And then, yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead if you want to share anything on Piazza. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then I – like, so – they they traded off everybody and then Leland calls me in the office and he goes, Kanji, I might have a deal done for you. Which if the deal would have happened, I probably would have got it maybe another year or two in the big leagues. And um, so I was supposed to go to the Cubs because um, they wanted like a, a switch hitter off the bench, kind of a speed guy, or whatever. And Leland says, don't dress out tonight. Coming tomorrow, deal should be done and you, you'll. And then that that was music to my ears because now I'm coming back home. I could play for the Cubs. I'm living and sleeping in my own bed and then have an opportunity because they were in contention. So my role solidified maybe getting another year out of the deal after the season because you're not going to pay me 
you know, uh, you're not going to pay me a decent salary as a bench player when you're going to lose 100 games. So my role didn't solidify being with the Marlins. So if I stay with the Marlins, I was pretty much out of baseball. So um, the deal fell through. The Cubs, uh, they got off the waiver wire. They got Orlando Merced instead of me. They, they opted to go with the more of a guy that had like a little more pop off the bench. So I ended up staying with the Marlins, and then the rest is history. Then I came back to the White Sox, had a decent spring training, hit three, over 300. They ended up keeping Darren Jackson over me, and that's it. So then I, I was retired, um, not knowing what I was going to do. Leland calls me up, says, Kanji, um, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm actually taking my family on a vacation. I'm like, hey, man, where, where am I going? He goes, Kanji, you can't freaking play no more. <laughs> he goes, I'm calling you for a coaching. I'm calling you for a coaching job. He goes, if you want a coaching job, I have one lined up for you. Outfield, base running, roving instructor with the Rockies. If you're interested, call me back. So I thought about it and um, called him back, and that's how I started my coaching career. I coached with him for a year. He got burnt out, didn't really like the players at the time. So he walked away from a three-year contract with the Rockies. Um, then I went to the Cubs to coach things didn't work out. And then I just started my, um, my baseball school, uh, with Bo Jackson. So me and Bo Jackson are partners in Cangelosi baseball and Bo Jackson elite sports in the Chicagoland area. Yeah, I, I know that from, and, and we'll move on to this next chapter here of your post-playing career. And then we'll talk about the, uh, the book that's, that's coming out. Um, for people who don't know, uh, Kanji every year, uh, makes the trek to, South Florida, kind of Southern Florida, I would say, in Jupiter for perfect game, Cangelosi baseball, and the development that you've done with these young men has been fantastic. You're one of the most popular coaches in the country. I know that uh, you're traveling all over with travel baseball teams, and I had a chance to see a couple years ago there at perfect game. Uh, how did you decide to get into that? I, I know that some people, when they're done, can't you playing as long as they do, they decide, oh, gosh, like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with baseball. And yet, here you are, like, taking it to another level, becoming one of the most popular coaches and one of the best programs in the Midwest. Well, I, I mean, at first, when I, when I got I, – I, I always kind of knew I was going to be a lifer, but I thought I'd be, like, a third-base coach or a, a bench coach or first-base coach in the big leagues. And unfortunately that didn't happen. And I just wanted to be around for my kids, you know, and, and if I'm going to, you know, that, that's the sad part, you know, when I was coaching, they're only paying these guys like 50 grand at the time, you know, I can make 50 grand working at McDonald's and I'm, I'm away from my family. So it really didn't justify me being away six months at a time, you know, where I could do something around here from a financial standpoint and, and do the same thing. So I actually worked, I worked in sales and I did a few things and I'm like, you know what? I got to go back to what I know. So I started giving baseball lessons and, you know, I ran into this one guy and, and make a long story short, we started this fall league before, you know, it, I, I was, I had like 120, 150 kids, but I had really nowhere to put them, you know? So I didn't have a facility. I just had like a, I rented a little building. So I, I, this one kid's dad came to me, and uh, he was more of an entrepreneur kind of guy. So I had this vision of a dome bringing uh, baseball to the Midwest, more like a 11, 12 month experience because everything's training is sports specific. You know, it's unfortunately the day the three sport athlete is gone. Everyone's training. You got quarterback camp, you got hitting lessons, pitching lessons, you got everything is sports specific. So I opened, you know, I said, if we can get this professionally done, 
you know, I have a vision of a dome. And I said, I'll bring this to Bo Jackson. I'll, you know, I'll pay, pay for his name. We'll bring it to Nike, Under Armour, whatever. And then he liked the idea so much. We're all equal partners. And then that's when the first dome was open was uh, about 11 years ago. And we're fully, you know, we opened up another one in Columbus, Ohio, uh, right outside of, uh, it's actually Hilliard, right outside of Columbus. And we're getting ready to open our third one a little bit north of Chicago in the Bensonville area. We just had the groundbreaking ceremony. So things are going good. I love the game. You know, I love giving back. I love seeing how these kids, you know, form a routine, create a, a great work ethic. And if you're not going to be successful in baseball, at least you'll be successful in something. But we've been, I've been very blessed with having a great staff. We're growing at a tremendous rate. And we're, we're getting these kids to college and we're getting them K, uh, uh, scholarships. We're getting school paid for. And that's all you can ask, man. If you, if you dedicate yourself, parents pay that financial burden up front, you know, you're going to get, you're going to see rewards at the back end. I mean, we, we have nine, over 90% of our kids go on to get some sort of scholarship and, and get school paid for. And, and, and that's awesome to see. So I'm, I'm really happy with the kids. I'm, I'm happy and fortunate that I could put a facility like this together and, and things are going good. All right, let's end with this. John Cangelosi, 1997 World Series champion. Of course, look, a lot of younger folks, uh, Kanji, as you know, are listening to these type of podcasts. They may not remember your career. Five foot eight, played more than 10 seasons, played with the White Sox, the Marlins, uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates, of course. Uh, we got a couple of minutes left. If you wouldn't mind, uh, Kanji, tell us more about the book, The Improbable Baseball Journey of the Undersized Kid from Nowhere to World Series Champion by K.P. Wee, who's very well established in baseball, has written stories about the Dodgers I know in the past. Uh, Kanji, before we go, give us a little idea how this came together, and we'll wrap it up with that. Well, a friend of mine knows KP through the uh, uh, writing books and autographs. I mean, so KP contacted me and thought it'd be a great story that, you know, a guy that played in the big leagues that shouldn't even played big league, let alone college baseball, uh, how I survived. And, and just it's that blue collar attitude. So the reason why I did the book is not so much that I played in the big leagues and, and I was blessed with a great career and uh, was very fortunate that I played in the World Series, but to give kids the, the idea of when someone tells you no, or you're too small, or you're not good enough, you're not fast enough, whatever the case may be, don't believe what you hear all the time. And, you know, it, it takes hard work, takes dedication, whatever you decide to do from sales to sports to whatever, form a routine, you know, be excited about what you're doing, believe in your ability, and your mind's a powerful tool. If I have anything that I'm, I'm really strong-willed at, I, I was a very tough mental player. I mean, in a game of failure, I, I just knew how to bounce back. I knew how to talk to myself. So with that being said, the book's about giving these kids an inspiration of, of, about how to be successful. You could read this book, even though it's about John Cangelosi's career on the baseball field, you could apply it in any, any way you want and, and use it as a tool. You know, just take take my story and take where I've gone and what I did with it with limited ability and, and, and did so much. And, and I have a mission statement. I have like a little quote. If I listened to every time someone said I was too smart, I couldn't do something, I'd be pumping gas. And for you young kids out there that don't know what pumping gas is, when I was growing up, you, you, there was a gas attendant that used to like get your oil stick, change your oil, 
put, you know, pump your gas and you got paid. That was your job. So it, it's, it's a matter of, I had a lot of great mentors. I had a lot of people that doubted me, but at the end of the day, I was accountable for which way I wanted to go. And I, I wanted to get out of the neighborhood. I wanted to survive. I wanted nice things. It's okay to think that way. And it, it motivated me. And, and then at a young age, I just really had self-discipline, you know, and I applied it in my baseball skills. So the book will help you understand taking that young kid, where he went, his journey. And then all of a sudden you have, you have the ability to, to apply that. And you know what, I want to start, I want to be an engineer. People don't say I'm not, I'm not smart enough or use the tools of learning how to coach yourself, learn how to talk to yourself, make a positive or make a negative into a positive, all these things that could really, you know, make you take that, 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 that fork in the road where you're going to go the wrong way or the right way. So again, I, I was blessed with a lot of great people around me. I was very strong willed. I wanted to, to have nice things in life and it didn't come easy. Nothing's easy, but if you create self-discipline and, and will and dream and all those good things, I mean, great things could happen. I mean, don't give up. No question. Uh, great interview as always with you, Kanji. And you can purchase the book uh, by KP Wee. He's a great writer, uh, especially when it comes to baseball. Really unique story from John Cangelosi, World Series champion uh, on Amazon right now. If you have Kindle, it's just 10 bucks. Uh, paperback is 20 and, um, and something that I would recommend everybody pick up. Kanji, thank you so much. For, uh, we're going to wrap it up Pretty here. Good. So thank you so much, Johnny, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Pick thank up his you. book right now on Kindle, nine ninety nine. Paperback, nineteen ninety nine on Amazon. World Series champion, nineteen ninety seven. John Cangelosi. Kanji, have a great one. Thanks again. Take, take care. Take care. Well, I enjoyed every second of that interview with John Cangelosi. Honestly, was blown away by his story and the story of the 1997 team, to be honest, and learning more about the intricacies of how everything went down in terms of acquiring players and, and who he considered to be the most important players on that team. Honestly, really cool information from Kanji and uh, really happy that he joined us here on this podcast. Make sure to obviously read his book um, and check out his podcast. Also, you know, plenty of baseball podcasts to go around. Um, but before we do go, I did want to let you guys know why I won't be around um, next week here on Swings and Mishes, whether that's on social media, trying to stay off of there or, or here on the podcast. This will be the first episode that I've ever missed on Swings and Mishes. Um, and I wanted to let you guys know it will be because I am going to be working um, slash volunteering at Camp Fiesta. Uh, camp Fiesta is located here in South Florida. It is a nine-day sleepaway summer camp for children with cancer. Um, camp Fiesta is entering its 34th year, and I am so unbelievably grateful to be a part of it. Uh, my family has been involved since the very beginning. It's such an important cause. Um, it's it's I hold it so near and dear to my heart. Um, and Camp Fiesta is really a family. What's so special is um, I'm very fortunate. I am not someone that has battled cancer. Uh, no one in my immediate nuclear family has battled cancer. Um, but I am one of three or four volunteers at camp of the 80 people there in general between the campers and the counselors that has not battled cancer. So you have about 50 kids every year that attend the camp. These are 50 children under the age of 18, anywhere from the age of eight and up um, that are either currently battling cancer or in remission after a fight. Um, and 
all of near all of the counselors are former campers that beat cancer and are now survivors that are mentoring these younger kids that are now going through something something similar to what they went through and it, it it's truly the most incredible um I mean, I think it's the, it, we call it the greatest camp in the history of the world. And I, and I truly believe that. So I'll be there for nine days. Um, if you guys are, are sort of inspired by what camp stands for, um, you can visit campfiesta.com. Um, and there is a way that you can donate there. If you're interested in learning more about what camp is all about and, and being able to donate, um, obviously most of the volunteers are unfortunately there's not really volunteer opportunities this is mostly for the people that have been involved in the camp before that that are cancer survivors i'm just fortunate my family has been involved from the beginning um and i don't happen to be one of those folks but it is truly um the most incredible uh thing that exists it's 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 right down here in south florida it's benefiting kids here in south florida so if you are a south florida native and you do want to help make camp fiesta the greatest experience possible um, you know, we have everything set up for this year, but next year is the 35 year anniversary and we're looking to go big. So if you are interested in donating to Camp Fiesta, you can either uh, direct message me on Twitter to, to find out more at Jeremy Taché or go to campfiesta.com uh, and donate from there. So thank you guys. Um, I'm sorry I won't be here next week, um, but I look forward to rejoining everybody after the trade deadline. We will still have episodes of Swings and Mishes next week. Craig will still be here. We will still have a producer. We will still have everything going, and we will still keep you updated on the trade deadline. Enjoy Throwback Weekend, and I look forward to speaking to you guys again after Camp Fiesta.